I'm dreaming of a white spring break. (laughs) I'm glad you guys are here this morning. Today, I am thankful for our snow removal crew here. They were here before the sun ever thought about coming up, working their tails off. Yeah, let's give them a round of applause. Would you guys pray with me before we jump in this morning? Oh, Father, we love you. And today we ask that you would dethrone us. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. All power and all glory belongs to you. So we ask that you glorify yourself among us today and that you would meet us here. We remember today the triumphal entry. This is Palm Sunday. When you came riding in as a triumphant king, but you weren't the king the people wanted. You were a king who went to a cross. So help us to follow you to our cross. And we cry out today, Hosanna. Save us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a book by a guy named Dr. Milton Rokich called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. And Dr. Milton Rokich is a psychiatrist in Ypsilanti, Michigan. And in this book, he tells about three of his patients, three guys named Leon, Clyde, and Joseph. And these three guys all suffered from a delusional disorder. You see, each one of them actually thought that they were Jesus Christ. Yeah. And so you can imagine that this gets pretty interesting throughout the course of the book. Uh, What Dr. Rokic does then to try to cure them of this disease is he has them do everything together for two years. These guys sleep in the same room together. They eat all of their meals together. They work the same job together. Every afternoon they have group therapy session together in the hopes that by rubbing up against other people who thought that they were Jesus, it would somehow snap them back into reality. It's kind of like a messianic 12-step recovery group. And you can imagine some pretty interesting conversations coming from this. One afternoon, all four of them sitting together in group therapy, and one of the guys says, I'm on a mission from God. I was sent here to save the world. Dr. Rokic would say, well, how do you know? God told me. Another one of the guys would pipe up and say, I never told you any such thing. (laughs) It's a pretty funny story at times. But as you keep reading, it's also a sad story because these three guys never do come back to reality. They remain trapped in their Messiah complex, convinced that they are the most important person in the world. It's a funny story, but it's a sad story, and it's also a familiar story. Because my confession this morning is this. I have my own little piece of the Messiah complex. The biblical word for it is pride. Maybe I'm not the only one in the room. Winston Churchill once said, we are all worms, but I do believe I am a glow worm. (laughs) Pride. We all want to be on the throne of our own lives. It's literally the oldest sin in the book. What was it that the serpent whispered to Eve in the garden? You can be like God. Because pride, putting myself On the throne, at the center of my own little universe, is me wanting to take God's place. It's a Messiah complex. You see, in each of our hearts is a throne and a cross. And it's up for us to decide which one we will put ourselves on. And at our core, we are by nature self-centered. We seek what is good for us. We ultimately pursue our own pleasure. The philosophical term for it is hedonism. We are by nature hedonists. 
Nobody has to teach us to hop up on the throne of our own lives. My son Judah is four months old, and he is a hedonist. There's no such thing as a selfless baby. He cries until Rebecca feeds him. He cries until one of us picks him up and plays with him. And odds are he's going to grow up and he's going to want to do what all his friends do. And he's going to want to have the things that the other kids have. And if he's like most adults, he's going to grow up and want to have the best job, live in the best house, go on the best vacations, so on and so forth. Because ultimately, we pursue our own pleasure. We want what's best for us. We have no natural desire to empty ourselves. No. We want to be filled. We like being on the throne of our own lives. And so we develop this little God syndrome, a Messiah complex, pride. And it happens even here in the church. Shocker. (laughs) We can be so thankful that Jesus died for us. We can be so grateful that Jesus sacrificed to take away our sin. And then we just go on living however we want on the throne of our own little lives. We love to let Jesus be our savior, but we don't really want to let him be our Lord. We appreciate the cross with no desire to imitate the cross because we want to be comfortable. We want to do what we think is right and best because let's be honest, nobody wants to die on a cross doesn't look like that much fun. So we let Jesus die on the cross for us, but instead of getting up there to be with him, we like to stay on the throne. It's a crossless Christianity. A.W. Tozer writes that we want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying And a crossless Christianity, leaving Jesus on the cross and placing ourselves on the throne, it has dire consequences. So is this you this morning? Let's take a look at some of the effects of a crossless Christianity, being on the throne of our own lives. See if you see yourself in it. I think one of the first effects of a crossless Christianity is vanity. You're obsessed with how you look, with what others think of you. You have to have uh, the funniest tweet or the cutest new clothes or the nicest house or the most likes of your Instagram post or, or you happen to sneak into conversations that you get to go to Florida for the winter. Yeah, the people who need to hear that aren't even here today, are they? <laughs> Maybe with you on the throne, it looks like defensiveness. You can't stand being wrong. And if somebody points out that they think you're wrong, instead of listening to them, you immediately puff up and you have to defend yourself. Maybe it's control. You like to have things done your way. You have trouble letting other people lead. Maybe it's put downs. You tell jokes that make other people look bad so that you feel better about yourself. Maybe a crossless Christianity for you looks like stubbornness. It's your way or the highway. Tell me, if I asked your spouse this morning how often you deferred to them and let their opinion win, what would they say? Uh, Maybe for you, being on the throne looks like impatience. You snap at the kids. You have no grace for coworkers. You want people to change now. You you know, you're, you're mean and rude to your wife when she inconveniences you. Maybe for you, it's exclusion. You're pretty choosy about who you're seen with. That weird mom, she talks too loud, and that coworker who gets all up in everybody's face, or that kid at school who's kind of weird, he's not in the popular group. You don't want to be seen with them. 
Maybe it's secrecy. You keep all your failures and weaknesses a secret and you never tell anybody about it because if they knew the real dark, scary parts of your heart, your hurts, your dreams, your fears, well, they might think less of you. Maybe for you, a crossless Christianity looks like ranking the room, that you walk into a room and you automatically start comparing yourself with others. Well, I make more money than he does. I have nicer clothes than her. I'm better at this than they are. I could beat him up. (laughs) Maybe for you, it's refusing to accept help. Gentlemen, you're too proud to admit your weaknesses when you can't do something. It's hard for you to let other people serve you. You can't humble yourself enough to accept help. Maybe a crossless Christianity looks like jealousy for you, that when you compare yourself with others and you come up short, then you want what other people have. You want to be able to do what they can do. You want their money, their technology, where they live, their job. You're not content with what you have. Because, man, a Messiah complex, this me sitting on the throne of my own life, it sounds exhausting. And it is, isn't it? And ultimately, the ironic thing is that when we sit on the throne of our own lives, refusing to die to ourselves, ultimately, we just end up dying anyway. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. In other words, if we stay on the throne of our own lives, ultimately, it will end in our spiritual death because the door to heaven is cross-shaped, and you only get in when you follow Jesus' cross and you get up on your own. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16, 24, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple, a disciple is a, a follower, a learner. If you want to follow Jesus, it says they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, we've heard this take up your cross phrase used poorly, right? I don't think Jesus is talking about the daily toils and troubles of everyday life as taking up your cross. He's not talking about sickness or annoying family members or even natural disasters as taking up your cross. It's not, man, I used to have so many friends who are Cubs fans, just my cross to bear. (laughs) No, that's just the natural consequence of living in a sinful and fallen world, amen? (laughs) Taking up your cross means one thing and one thing only. Death. Because 2,000 years ago, the cross was not some nice shiny piece of jewelry that you wore around your neck or put up on your wall or on your church steeple. No, it was a symbol of utter shame and excruciating suffering and certain death. So when Jesus calls you to take up your cross, he calls you to come and die. Rather harsh-sounding invitation, isn't it? (laughs) Jesus told his followers again in Mark chapter 8, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. But losing our life, death, that's kind of a scary thing. It's not really a pleasant word. Jerry Seinfeld says that people's number one fear is public speaking. And number two is death. Which means that when you go to a funeral, you'd rather be the guy in the casket than the guy giving the eulogy. (laughs) Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to be at your own funeral? What people are going to say at your funeral? It's a shame people don't get to go to their own funerals. Everybody's nice to you at your funeral. (gasps) I wonder what people are going to say at my funeral. But then, again, on, on second thought, I've already had my funeral. And if you're a Christian, so have you. Your baptism was your funeral. Look at what Paul says about baptism here in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. 
He says, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been set free from sin. Justin's gonna get baptized here in a little bit. And when he does, his old self is gonna die to sin. He's gonna be reborn. And if you're still sinning, Maybe you're not quite dead yet. Paul goes on. He says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. And the life he now lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul talks again about our conversion in terms of death. In Colossians 3, he says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When you were baptized, it was your funeral. You died to sin. You died to yourself. I know of a guy who was a minister uh, near St. Louis, and a man started coming to his church. Big guy. He was interested in following Jesus, but for some reason, he was really hesitant about being baptized. So every time this guy would talk to the minister about being baptized, this guy, he literally starts shaking and he would walk out of the room. True story. So the minister met with this man for months talking about baptism, and the fellow, he just wasn't ready to do it. Until finally, one day, the guy came walking up to the minister, and he said, okay, I'm ready, let's do this. But I'm a big guy, and I'm gonna fight, so it's probably gonna take both of you. What? <laughs> the minister was confused. The, the, the big guy said this several times. As it turns out, this guy thought that in baptism, he had to literally be drowned and then resuscitated. <laughs> Obviously, he was a little bit hesitant about that. <laughs> but he saw all these other Christians walking around the church, so he figured they must be good at it. <laughs> now, hear me, that guy was a little bit off in his understanding of baptism, but not by much. The Greek word for baptize is baptizo. Say that with me. Say baptizo. Yeah, you're getting your money's worth today. Baptizo. There was one ancient historian named Josephus, and every time he used the word baptizo, it referred to death. He used the word baptizo to describe a ship sinking or soldiers drowning or plunging a sword into an enemy's belly. Actually, there's a story of this one ancient ruler who was jealous of his son-in-law, and he was suspicious of his son-in-law, jealous of his popularity. And so, this ruler sent two of his soldiers on a business trip with his son-in-law. And while they were on this trip, the three men went swimming in a spring. And while they were swimming, the two soldiers baptizoed the son-in-law until he was no longer living. Now, I don't think they sprinkled him. (laughs) This wasn't a splash fight. (laughs) They immersed him. And when, in baptism, you go under the water, you enter into Christ's death with him. You die. You crucify your old sinful self. And so now, every day, we're called to get off the throne and to crawl up on the cross, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. In other words, the only proper response to Christ's gift to us on the cross is to accept it and then to get up on the cross with him. We're called to be, in a way, the walking dead, these living sacrifice people. Most of us aren't going to die a martyr's death. Or we just go out in a blaze of glory for what we believe. But you can die for your faith. 
little by little, every day, by coming down off the throne and taking up your cross. Which, after all, is what Jesus did for us. He stepped down from heaven's throne and he came and he lived among us where we did our worst to him. We stripped him and whipped him and shredded him and beat him and then we laughed and we told him to carry his own cross up the hill where we'd kill him on it. And Jesus was weak as he carried his cross. He'd been up all night and all morning being beaten and whipped and interrogated and so it was no wonder that he stumbled as he was carrying it up the hill there. And so the Romans grabbed a random guy out of the crowd, a guy named Simon, Simon of Cyrene. They made him carry Jesus' cross. Mark 15, 21 tells us about it. It says, a certain man, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. And so Simon bent down to help Jesus carry the cross. And he hefted it up on his shoulder. <clears throat> At first it wasn't so bad, heavy, but manageable. But then with every step, it got heavier and heavier as the sharp edges dug into his neck and the splinters on the wood pierced the skin of his shoulders and the bloodstains on the cross stuck to the shirt on his back. It wasn't pleasant carrying his cross. It also wasn't optional. Simon didn't choose to carry this cross. They forced him to. And when you follow Jesus, carrying your cross is not optional. It's part of the deal. And when Simon was called to carry this cross, it interrupted his plans. He had to drop everything else he was carrying to take it up. And when you follow Jesus, he's probably gonna interrupt your plans for yourself and you're gonna have to follow him with everything that you have. But look at the impact that carrying this cross had on Simon. We don't know much about Simon, but the gospel writer Mark here assumes that the readers knew who his sons were, Alexander and Rufus, which means they were probably part of the church. When you carry your cross, you set an example for those who come behind you. They might be sitting in the row with you right now. What are they seeing as you live? Carrying your cross isn't easy. It costs a lot to take up a cross. And you don't get to build your own cross. You don't get to pick which one you carry. You're called to just take up the one in front of you. And it's not made of feathers. <laughs> It doesn't come with a velvet shoulder pad to make it easier to carry. It's splintered and it's bloody. This cross, it isn't an easy shape to carry. It's awkward. It interferes. It gets in the way of the stuff I want to do. Jesus might get in the way of the stuff you want to do. It's not honorable to carry a cross. It was a shameful thing to be crucified. You probably won't get to be proud when you share, when you carry Jesus' cross and carry your own cross. It's a shameful thing. It'd be like saying, you know, the God I worship was convicted by federal court and put on death row and then executed by lethal injection. It's kind of embarrassing. And when you're carrying a cross, it means that you're only facing one direction. You have no further plans because you're not coming back from where you're headed. This cross is the end and the culmination of your story. And carrying this cross means dying a thousand little deaths before the day when you actually leave earth. And stepping down off the throne and letting go of your Messiah complex and taking up your cross means admitting that there is a God and it is not you. But we know that when we take up a cross and we die to ourselves, 
After the cross comes a resurrection. So yes, as Christians, we are dying, but we are dying to live. This might be my favorite verse in the whole Bible. I'd get it tattooed on my heart if I could. Galatians 2.20. For I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When you take up your cross as a Christian, you die, but somebody still lives. Who? Jesus. Jesus Christ lives in you. That's why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 1, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's why he can say in 2 Timothy chapter 2, here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with Christ, we know that we'll also live with him. You're going to live with him, not just for eternity in heaven, but you can also live with him here and now on earth. That's why he could say in Philippians chapter 3, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. When we die to ourselves, Jesus Christ lives in us and we get to live with him, not just forever in heaven, but here on earth every day with his resurrection power pulsing through our veins. Man, isn't it great to be dead? (laughs) So practically speaking, let's take a look at what it looks like for you to hop down off your throne and to take up your cross. What does it look like for Jesus to live in you and rule your life? I think it looks like surrender. That you're okay with giving up your stuff and your time and your money and your possessions because you're totally secure in your faith in Jesus. I think it looks like submission. Guys, my wife is so much wiser than I am. She just is. But when we come to a decision, she'll say, Luke, here's my input. Here's what I think. But you make the call. I'm following you. And there have been a lot of times where I've messed it up. I've made the wrong decision but she still graciously loves and serves and follows and submits. And man, our marriage grows so much when we each die to ourselves like that. I think taking up your cross looks like encouragement, that instead of being threatened by the people around you, you can actually rejoice with them and you can genuinely love and support and encourage them. I think it looks like quietness, that when you're attacked and when you're blamed, you don't have to fight back. Jesus didn't defend himself when he was accused and you don't have to either. I think it looks like patience. When you realize how amazingly patient God has been with you in your pride and your sin, then you can be like him, slow to anger, abounding love, patient with those around you. I think taking up your cross looks like openness. You're not scared of your weaknesses anymore because you know that that Christ's power is made perfect in your weakness, so you can actually let people see the real you. I think it looks like boldness. You can swallow your pride enough to actually say the name of Jesus and share your faith with somebody. I think it looks like intentionality. That instead of looking around and wondering why nobody's talking to you, you can find somebody who needs a friend worse than you do. You can do the job that nobody else wants to do. I think it looks like forgiveness. When somebody hurts you, you forgive them and you love people, especially when they don't deserve it. When somebody speaks harshly to you, you speak kindly in return. I think it looks like interruptibility. You can take up your cross by actually making time for people, even when it's inconvenient. 
taking up your cross might look like gratitude, that instead of focusing on what you don't have, you can focus on what you do have and realize that it's a gift from God, so you thank him for it. We gotta recognize, though, that we can do all these things for other people in the power of Jesus because this is what God has done for us. If you wanna know what God is like, we see the glory of God most clearly on the cross and we know him most intimately when we get up on the cross with him. And the great irony of it all is this. When we step down off our throne, when we let go of our Messiah complex and take up our cross, that's actually when we look most like the Messiah. That's actually when we experience unity with him most intimately. Because ultimately, I'm not strong enough to carry this cross on my own. If left to my own devices, I try to crawl down off this thing pretty often. I need nailed to it. I try to get back up on the throne. But every time I do, in my weakness and my selfishness, I'm going to remind myself that I'm dead. And I'm going to bring my will back into submission to Jesus Christ. And I'm going to crawl back up on the cross with him. And I'm going to let him sit on the throne of my heart. Because we have the promise that when we die to ourselves... That's actually when we get the life that Jesus is promising most fully. Because Jesus died on the cross. But we know what happened on the third day, right? Spoiler alert. Life. (laughs) So will you choose to die with Jesus? Today and tomorrow and every day. Get down off the throne and take up your cross Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.